This is the Author Archive podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to the American novelist and journalist, Carl Hyacin. He's written many best-selling novels, and I spoke to him when Basket Case was first released. Basket Case is a crime novel with a sort of twinkle in its eye, and it's about the death of a rock star. A rock star called... Jimmy Stoma uh, is the is the deceased rock star who has faded away uh, out of uh, from the 80s and sort of that typical career arc of uh, obesity, rehab, and obscurity. And he's gone off and is off by himself and minding his own business when he dies under suspicious circumstances. I thought this was going to be a, a little like Michael Hutchins in excess, but it's not because this guy is supposed to have died underwater. A scuba diving accident. It was supposed to look very innocent. And, routine and these things happen in the Bahamas and uh, and the, the hero of this novel is an obituary writer middle-aged obituary writer which is of course the worst it's not like you at all no but it's the worst time of one's life to be writing obituaries when you <laughs> hit that age because that's the time you start reading the obituaries I mean it, this isn't you but you still work on a paper don't you? I do I still write a column for the Miami Herald and I've done obituaries but I've never been locked handcuffed to that particular morbid beat like poor old Jack in the novel. But you know what it's like. Yeah, and, and you recreate, or your job is to go in and sort of sift through the faxes from the funeral home and decide which of these poor folks is worth an actual written obituary in your newspaper, one that's written as a story, not just as a little notice, a death notice. And it's a very cold-blooded process to decide whose life was worthy enough to, to memorialize in a newspaper, and that's what Jack does. And, and it is the death page. It's the death page. And it's also, as, as you probably know, one of the best read sections of any newspaper. It's the one we cringe about, but it's the one that everyone takes a look at. And Jack has an adversary, well, at the beginning of the book anyway. Uh, it's kind of a, you sense there's a bit of a love-hate thing here, but um, she's young, she's an upstart, she's attractive. Yeah, I would say. I mean, this is his editor, Emma, and it, all of us in middle age in the newsroom, I mean, one of the first requirements is we despise and distrust young editors. They can't possibly know anything, and they can't possibly be any good if they're young. And uh, that's Jack's attitude going in toward Emma. In fact, he's, he's, he's hell-bent on driving her out of the newspaper business. He thinks she belongs in retail footwear, and uh, his job is to sort of make her life miserable. And her job, of course, is to keep him confined to the obituary beat where he's been uh, demoted uh, for various crimes against authority. And uh, so there is a very prickly relationship to start, but it changes during the, yeah, they learn, exactly. they both learn a lot about each other. Yeah. She paints her toenails. <clears throat> she does. She In kind of candy colors. Candy colored toenails, which throws Jack off completely. He's got one image of her in, in his mind is sort of prim and proper. And uh, when she sees this, he goes nuts, of course. It, it throws everything. It, all This whole formula is now destroyed. So, But that's what happens to all of us in middle age. We get surprised rather easily. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's one woman in the book. That's Emma. Uh, and then there's Jimmy's sister and Jimmy's grieving widow. What yes. color is her hair? Well, I, at various stages, I think it starts out sort of platinum. And then it, yeah, because she's likened to Johnny Winter. At some right, time. right, right. Now, not everybody will remember Johnny Winter's hair color. It's but a, it was it was a whiter shade of albino. Right, it? right. It was something exactly. Um, the, 
she is a young sort of wannabe, Alanis Morissette wannabe. Jimmy's widow is much younger than he is. She she's, aspires to be a pop diva. She's assembling her own posse and, and her own little set of petulant behavior, and she's on her way. She's well on her way. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, this woman, she hijacks the funeral. She, well, of course. I mean, she uses the, her dead husband's funeral um, to, to, as the occasion to launch her new single, and she plays it at the funeral. If you've, if you've, you know, and if you watch MTV enough, you'll know this is not all that far-fetched. I mean, unlike Alanis and the others, this, this is a woman of rather minimal talent who has... Uh, has she plays three chords, A minor, a barred <laughs> F, and C. I think right, you're, and, you're right. And not altogether in the right order in some occasions. That's right, that's right. She had three chords down, and, uh, but she sees an opening in this in the fleeting world, which is the music business. Now, you know, in the old, oh, the old days, when I, you know, if you, when I was a kid, if you, if you bought one Stones album, you bought every single Stones album, and you just there was an incredible loyalty. Now, if if you go two years between albums, they don't know who you are anymore, and you're off the charts already. I mean, this happens all the, the meteoric, you know, the demise of these groups. So she knows her. 15 minutes of fame and fortune is going to be fleeting and so she's going to cash in quickly and so why miss an opportunity like a funeral to, to debut a new single? Some of your enthusiasms I think leak in here um, like uh, the Doors album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well you know this is the selfish uh, indulgence of a, of a novelist as I can put the music I like in there and I can and uh, by the same token I can poke fun at, at at the business, uh, not just the newspaper business, but the rock and roll business, which is certainly always ripe for satire, good, healthy, nasty satire, and uh, uh, because it em embodies sort of the, all the, the great excesses of our time. Yeah, talking about bodies, um, Jack goes and has a look at the body, right. the ex-rock star. Right. Now, what's supposed to have happened? Well, he's supposed to have died uh, in a scuba diving accident in the Bahamas. And these things happen. Even experienced divers miscalculate the amount of air in their tanks or uh, have a, some sort of uh, breathing attack and whatever. And, it, and the Bahamian authorities have pretty much decided it was an accidental drowning. And um, so Jack, uh, being a reporter, and still, even though obituary writers don't usually go to this kind of a length, but he's still an investigative reporter at heart. So he takes Jack's... Uh, takes uh, Jimmy Stoma's sister with him uh, to the funeral home where the body is being prepared. And, uh, and the first thing he notices is that Jimmy, even in death, looks better than Jack ever looked in life. <laughs> he looks awfully good for a dead rock star. And, uh, but the second thing they notice is that there didn't appear to be any autopsy performed, which uh, would make it difficult to determine exactly how he had died. And that's sort of where the mystery begins, where even Jimmy's sister knows she's seen enough TV, enough American TV to know about autopsies, and she says there, there ought to be some stitches somewhere, and all that's there is this big glorious tattoo, um, totally uh, politically incorrect tattoo of a, of a serpent entwined around a, a, a naked yeah. lady. Um, and uh, it's still very much there and undisturbed by any sort of surgical intrusion, and right away they figure out something else happened. You have a, a little side swipe at the sort of people who get jobs in these homes, like Jimmy's got a... Um, <laughs> right. I mean, is this something from life? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we, we've had so many uh, funeral home scandals. Uh, you know, not that you're necessarily assuming it would, it would happen, but. Uh, 
in this in the novel, the the guy um, who runs this little funeral operation steals the diamond stud off Jimmy's ear because they're going to bury him in it. He figures who's going to notice. So in the end, we see him. Actually, he's already put it in a little too soon, and it's been noticed. But we just had several cases in Florida of. Uh, at one place, I, they ran out of space at a funeral. I mean, Florida real estate is very valuable, and I guess they just didn't want to use up any more than they had to, and they just started burying caskets on top of another, and then removing the ones on the bottom, uh, and, and basically throwing them in the woods, and hoping nobody, that the relatives of the ones wouldn't notice. And of course, somebody came back, and Grandpa wasn't where they had planted him, uh, and <clears throat> things got ugly. Now there's a big class action lawsuit because they ran out of space. They just started throwing the bodies in the, in the woods. And they're just another uh, case that's just happened in Georgia, a horrible, horrible case of a crematorium there that apparently they were, ran out of fuel or whatever they use, and they just warehoused about 185 corpses like in the, in, the, in the chicken barn, I guess. I don't know. But these things do happen. I have a clipping that I carry with me about... Another case in Florida where some funeral home employees were uh, digging all the gold uh, fillings and molars out of the uh, deceased before burying them. They had quite a little nest egg that they compiled of um, valuable dental trinkets. So this is not all that far-fetched. And this is the, the sort of information you collect? Well, you, you never know. <laughs> you know, and this is where... Uh, this is uh, the stuff of great literature, isn't it? <laughs> of course it is, Carl. Of course it is. Now, present, pr pretend this is a quiz show. Could you give me, and I think you'll be able to, even though you just got off a transatlantic flight. <laughs> oh, flag. God. What is the date of Elvis Presley's death? Oh, the date I cannot, I'm embarrassed to say I cannot give you. You do you know it's on, it's on your page. Is it? Well, see, there you go. I'm not sure. I know where I was. It was in August of 19... 77 and I was in Asheville, North Carolina and Elvis was due to play there and the reason I remember is I drove by the arena Elvis tonight and I said wrong <laughs> you know he said I had the headline in my lap he's not going to be here tonight <laughs> he's already left the building and yeah, so to speak so to speak because Elvis appears purely because um, Elvis's manager's name right is attached to a character Yes, I'll tell you about um, I'll tell you about that. The, there's a dead lizard that that plays a dead frozen lizard that plays a critical. Again, we're talking about these are literary devices. I'll try to you know. Yeah. But um, there's a frozen lizard in the book that becomes used as a weapon in a scene. Uh, Jack has to run to his freezer. He's he's being attacked. The only thing he has in the house, he doesn't own a handgun. He's one of the few people in Florida who doesn't own a handgun. Uh, he doesn't have a knife or a dagger, and all he can think of to defend himself with is this big frozen lizard that he stuck in his refrigerator. For he, he did have it when it was alive. He had it when it was alive. It expired. He, uh, for sentimental reasons, it had been given to him by a, a girlfriend who had left him, who he loved very much, and he couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to get rid of the lizard, so he just stuck it in the freezer with his popsicles and everything, and he grabs it and he uses it as a weapon. And, I get asked about that scene all the time is because it, it sounds on the surface fairly depraved, but it was based on an actual dead lizard I mean, uh, uh, that I knew personally and, and, a, and a fellow that I know personally who kept a lizard for the, only for the one purpose of attacking a burglar with it. That's all he wanted to do. It's, I know it sounds very peculiar, but I just basically ripped it off real life again. And the lizard was called? 
Well, the lizard in the novel is called Colonel Tom because he's named after Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's mentor. Um, but in real life, the lizard was Claw. It had a simple name, Claw, and he died. And my friend was heartbroken. And then he figured out he'd been burglarized a couple times. My friend had, and he said. And for a variety of reasons, a little too complicated to go into, he did not have any weapons. I don't think he was allowed to have any weapons at this point in his life. But he did have a freezer, and in the freezer he put this big lizard and curled it up. And he called me and he said, just wait till they break in this time. He says, wait till I show the cops what I hit him with. Because it was a very a big frozen lizard. There's nothing to sneeze at, I tell you. And uh, so John waited and waited, and, and as luck would have it, the, the burglars never came back. And he, for a couple of years, he had this lizard. Just in case. Just in case. And then we had a hurricane come through the Keys, where I live in Florida, and knocked the electricity out for about a week. And um, he had to divest himself of uh, poor old Claw. Uh, Richard Roma. Yeah, yeah, it was not a happy scene. But nonetheless, so what I did was I took that episode, and in, in my novel, I sort of had Claw used for the heroic purposes that John had envisioned. That's Carl Hyerson talking to me about his novel Basket Case when that was first published. Mm-hmm. 